0: Welcome to your number one source of information on women's pelvic health. On this podcast, you will hear from medical experts, pelvic health professionals, holistic healers, and patients themselves in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about regaining and maintaining your pelvic health and becoming your own best advocate for your pelvic floor, the most vital part of our bodies as women. All of the conversations are intimate, raw, and unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. Before we begin this episode, I want to thank Modern Fertility, an at-home hormone testing kit, for sponsoring this podcast and for offering all listeners $10 off their first order. Modern Fertility is the first comprehensive fertility hormone test for women that you can take at home. One in six couples have trouble conceiving. We have all of the tools to prevent pregnancy. However, we need more information in order to help us plan for it, even if kids are far in the future. Proactive fertility hormone tests often are not covered by insurance and can cost upwards of $1,500. However, at just $159, Modern Fertility sends you a super easy at-home test which you complete, send back to them, and then receive your results in under 10 days. This test gives you access to the information you need in order to help you plan ahead and navigate the world of fertility. Modern Fertility also creates a customized report in order to help you understand your fertility through your hormones. The test can tell you if you have more or less eggs than average, what you could expect from IVF or egg freezing, how your hormone levels relate to PCOS, which 1 in 10 women have, and your general hormone health, which is a window into your broader health. You'll have a personal fertility team to help you understand your results and come up with a game plan you get access to a team of fertility nurses, a weekly webinar, and their online community of other like-minded women. If you are currently pregnant or breastfeeding, the hormone test will not work for you. You can, of course, take it after this period of time to monitor your hormone health again. And if you are over 45 years old, the Modern Fertility test will not work either. With that said, if you want to go ahead and order Modern Fertility's at-home kit, you will receive $10 off as a Women's Pelvic Health podcast listener. So go to their website, www.modernfertility.com backslash pelvic health, and make sure you enter the backslash pelvic health in order to receive those $10 off. And I will link this URL in the show notes as well. So I hope that Modern Fertility will help all of you to feel empowered and in charge of your hormonal health and to better understand your amazing body. I'm here with Dr. Vapnik. He is a urologist in New York City. He's one of the top urologists in the city, and he offers comprehensive urologic care with a special focus on urinary control problems amongst women, those with spinal cord injuries as well, and individuals with neurologic disorders. Some of the conditions he treats include urinary incontinence, neurogenic bladder, chronic UTIs, interstitial cystitis, prostate disease, erectile dysfunction, kidney stones, pelvic prolapse, and overactive bladder. But he came here today to talk with us mostly about urological problems that women have, since that's the focus, specifically how these conditions relate to pelvic pain and pelvic floor dysfunction. So thank you for being here.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Uh, Do you want to first tell us how you got started in this career?
1: I think we can go back to medical school when I decided to become a urologist, and I originally matched in San Diego, which is where I had gone to medical school, but when a spot opened up in San Francisco, which is where I grew up, I decided to actually take that spot and transfer after two years. As it turns out, that the program at UCSF was headed by kind of a legendary guy whose name was Emil Tanago. He was a uh, Egyptian and there have been some major contributions by Egyptian urologists over the last, you know, half century. And he was one of the forerunners of dealing with urinary incontinence and pelvic pain and that was really how it got started.
0: Mm-hmm and that's when you decided. Did you always know that you wanted to be a urologist or you decided then?
1: No, urology is one of those things you sort of fall into. I mean, who wants to <laughs> deal with genitalia 24/7? But and we always joke about that, but you know, urology really is even general urology is still a fascinating field because right. unlike some specialties where you're really stuck doing the same thing over and over, I think urology is one of the Best, um, you know, broad spectrum specialties. You mm-hmm. can do office-based stuff. You can be in the operating room all the time. You can do endoscopic procedures, and then even within those fields, there's so many subspecialties to do. So, I guess it was kind of logical training at UCSF that I would ended up that I ended up doing a uh, fellowship in, uh, you know, incontinence and urodynamics and mm-hmm. reconstructive urology.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, so is that how you became kind of more focused on the women's pelvic health and women's urological health issues, or like how did you then specifically get focused in that area of work?
1: That's an area that is
0: because not all urologists are special know about these right. conditions. Right. Most if most you go don't. in
1: exactly if you go into most urologist's office, yeah, you'll say, "Oh, look at this! I'm like the only girl there." Right woman sorry right. um but you'll look at the the waiting room and there'll be like 20 old men there yeah and you think wait i'm in the wrong place this is kind of crazy and that's why a lot of these disorders have traditionally fallen into the OBGYN realm and i think that's something that some of them are very good at and some are not yeah it really depends on your training yeah so within urology if you i mean you don't necessarily have to do a fellowship in it i mean Mm -hmm. my fellowship frankly didn't have a lot of it at the time it was just a one-year fellowship also in california but as you practice you can say hey you know what i want to do more of one thing or more of another Mm -hmm. and that's kind of how it ended up happening and i've dealt with a lot of the um some of the other practitioners, like a lot of the pelvic floor rehab people. Yeah. There's a lot of physical therapists. I mean, here in New York, I think, almost more than anywhere else. Definitely. and Which is a really great resource because I think women in other areas of the country, depending upon where you're living, yeah. just don't have that access.
0: At all. Even I was talking to a woman in Florida who has vulvodynia and different pelvic pain conditions, and she asked if I knew of any specialists there and I asked my physical therapist if they knew of anyone and they said they know one person in Orlando and a few in Miami. And that's it. And that's it. in the whole state. That are like reputable.
1: Right. And there are a lot of urologists in Florida. I mean it's Medicare heaven and so you go down there there's there's so many urologists but a lot of it is just based on the fact that it's a Medicare population. There's a lot of old men with prostate problems Mm -hmm. and you know, let's face it, these kind of issues often require a lot more um, diligence and a lot more time. Yeah. You know, if I see somebody who has a prostate problem and I have, say, 15 minutes in my office, yeah, we can deal with the prostate issues for five minutes and then, you know, talk about current events for 10 right. minutes. What was in the New York Times this morning right. or something like that. So, you know, when it comes to pelvic pain, there's it's a lot more work, a lot more complicated Trying to figure out which type of pain disorder it is. So I think it's, again, there are some OBGYNs Mm -hmm. that are really good at it.
0: Most aren't.
1: Most are not. And, (laughs) you know, I think a lot of women also feel more comfortable since so many OBGYNs are female. And I get that. But a lot of it also has to do with, you know, just how, I mean, a lot of um, empathy and Mm -hmm. just communication stuff that, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it is being able to express understanding or empathy with a patient because these can, you know, can be really tough issues to deal with.
0: Why do you think that so many urologists don't have as much of an understanding as you do, let's say, about IC and, and pelvic pain and the pelvic floor muscles and how they can create bladder issues?
1: A lot of it is training. Yeah. Um, if your training doesn't have someone doing that you're basically ignorant you yeah. just don't even know about it and frankly then when it comes down to practicing you know we're under the gun between you know medicare and insurance companies and regulations and everybody's trying to get patients in and out of the office in mm-hmm. 10 or 15 minutes and this is one of those things that can take a long time i mean yeah. i know i i remember years ago a patient came to see me who, I mean, she just looked angry coming in. Mm-hmm. And she came in with about 150 pages of records. And I thought, oh, God, oh. this is not going to be good. Like, you know, I would love, and I actually, and I felt bad because I'm a pretty empathic mm-hmm. kind of guy. But I, at one point I just had to cut her off. I said, look, you know, Oxford doesn't, you know, I mean, I, I kind of, it, yeah. it was kind of harsh of me to say, look, I know I'm the fifth guy you're seeing, but Oxford doesn't, you know, for the $150 that Oxford pays me, I can't give you the time, I can't do what you need, you know, looking through 150 pages of records and taking a history. I mean, I think if I remember correctly, I said, you know, tell me, you know, when your problem started. And she said something like, well, you know, after I was born, and I thought, oh, this is bad. This is, this is, Oh it's really God. bad. So I think she may have come back one more time and luckily went somewhere else. But my point yeah. is not that I was being a jerk, but that yeah. some people, that person needed so much attention. Right. And, you know, even on a smaller basis, it's, you know, there is more time taken to deal with these issues than yeah. others. So I think a lot of urologists will say, oh, you know what? This is not my thing. Right. Here's a couple of names to right. go to. Or I don't even know who does it, but right. next.
0: Yeah really interesting so I saw you like maybe over a year and a half ago I think I was in your office for at least an hour like whenever I go see a doctor for the first time I have I'm talking for at least an hour
1: right and that's you know and for those of us who want to do the right thing and accept insurance I don't remember whether I accepted your insurance but I mean I try to treat everybody the same anyway but when you realize uh oh this is gonna take an hour and I've got three more people scheduled And we just do what we have to do. Now, yeah. you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of the people that specialize in this area don't accept don't, insurance. Yeah. And to some extent, that's I get it. Because, yes, if somebody's going to come in and spend an hour and a half, the insurance company doesn't care. Yeah. And, and the same thing goes true for therapists. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the pelvic floor therapists, don't. we have a big issue. It I'll is see, a really you know, big issue. It's a real problem. Yeah. And I still work with a lot of the physical therapists, um, some of them are extremely good and mm-hmm. very, and they're incredibly dedicated and empathic and everything else. but you know, when a woman comes in with crappy insurance to see me, in fact i I saw a patient not that long ago i don't I don't have any follow- up yet on how she's doing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but she came in she's it's not it doesn't so much have pelvic pain, it's mm-hmm. the overactive bladder and incontinence, yeah. but there's a huge crossover. And I examined her. I, you know, got a history. She'd been treated with Botox once, which she couldn't tolerate because it was being done under local. So she kind of, they didn't finish. Uh She had interstim put in, you know, which is I'll tell you about it. It's a sacral neuromodulation device.
0: Okay, I've heard of that. That's like an
1: eighteen thousand dollar device. Insurance pays for it, Uh of course, but that didn't work. She'd had urodynamics done. And it was basically normal. I'm like, now here's a woman who's wearing diapers, a healthy 62-year-old who wears diapers because of this problem she has. And I examined her. There was no pain anywhere, but what was striking was that she had no ability to contract or relax her her pelvic floor muscles. You know, the standard Kegel thing. And I thought, that's it. That's what she needs. If somebody can get her in touch with her pelvic floor muscles, I think this incontinence thing is going to go away. But, you know, I gave her some names and numbers. She's like, I can't pay $350 for an initial consultation and then $225 twice a week. You know, she's on, I don't know what her income was, but, you know, obviously she had insurance Mm. so that she could see me for $30 or whatever. Mm. Anyway, I found a therapist who... You did find one for her? Who will, who, 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 who's making... You know, giving her the friends and family. Yeah. And I joked with the patient. I said, oh, guess what? We're friends and family now. <laughs> you know, whatever. But that's what I could do because that's what she needs.
0: A hundred percent what she you know, and needs. So, and that I, will probably looking, fix her problem. You know,
1: I'll, we'll, we'll be in touch and I'll tell yeah. you what happens. But I'm, I'm very confident. And to think what she's been through, you know, putting in inter You know this idea of putting in—it's kind of insane. But you know the the urologist who put it in does a lot of those and sort of believes in it and probably gets paid relatively well to do it. So why drill down and she had this done? She did. Wow. So and the urologist who did it is a very very capable very good urologist. Right. And you know I didn't I don't know exactly what was happening at the time. Maybe she did get a reasonable response to the test stimulation. But I'm a little down on Interstem just because Mm. I find that it's this, I mean, it can work wonders, but um, there are a lot of people that get them and then they just, it's like this dead battery thing sitting in their butt cheek and then they want it out.
0: Wow. And it's also like why not try pelvic floor physical therapy first if someone, if you don't know about it, that's one thing, but if you can find out about it and it could help you, totally harmless and can change your life. Exactly.
1: So. I mean, especially if it's not going to cost you a fortune. But even right. so, I mean, I, you know, that's always been my philosophy, yeah. which is you try the easy stuff first. Yeah. You know, sometimes the easiest thing is prescribing medications and that's a little bit of a trap.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, it's like, oh, you just need some Valium. Now, right. I happen to be a big fan of Valium.
0: Right. You know,
1: I took some two nights ago because yeah. my back was acting yeah. up. But didn't really help my back, but I slept better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes doctors say if you sleep better, the pain's better.
1: That's absolutely right. right. I mean, somebody who, again, there's a huge overlap mm-hmm. between sort of bladder pain syndromes and uh, overactive bladder. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. Overactive bladder is urgency, frequency, with or without incontinence, and interstitial cystitis is urgency, frequency, and pain. Mm-hmm so who's to say that someone's pain isn't someone else's urgency yeah and it literally took me like 20 years in practice to realize that this there was this continuum and that for us you know physicians and others to arbitrarily separate them is not really accurate yeah and so for example somebody with interstitial cystitis if we're going to use that term Mm -hmm put them on an overactive bladder drug that might actually help them significantly mm-hmm. even though it's not specifically designed for IC
0: and you've seen that help
1: absolutely yeah. i mean it's one it's part of a multifactorial you know treatment approach yeah. and it's easy
0: mm-hmm. interesting so the next question that i have for you are when you see women who have pelvic pain conditions what are kind of the most common urological conditions that are associated with the pelvic pain conditions?
1: There's a huge overlap. Yeah. You know, I hate to, you know, I like to say mm-hmm. that women are more complicated than men. Much. So there's a lot, there are a lot more organs down there, a lot more sources of pain. Um, we have to avoid that sort of tunnel vision mm-hmm. of assuming that everything is the same, and I think the urological community has done that to some extent. When they've tried to lump everything together and i think that's a mistake now there's sort of a drive to separate them uh, into domains or i can't remember what the terminology Mm -hmm. is but i think that looking at the pelvic floor saying okay well this is truly a pelvic floor spasticity problem Mm -hmm. right that's something you can typically get when you palpate the various pelvic floor muscles but that's not everyone. Right. There are other people that come in. Pelvic floor muscles are fine, and you palpate the ba- bladder base. You're like, whoa, that's it.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: you can't treat those the same way. Yeah. Now they're all difficult to treat, but you know therapists will. You know they they're they are great. And I don't want this to sound mm-hmm. like I'm criticizing but they you know they sort of feel like everything can be treated with physical therapy and i think physical therapy certainly helps mm-hmm. but if i feel somebody whose levator muscles are fine but there's a lot of sensitivity to actual palpation of the bladder that makes me think you know what this is probably not right. the best candidate for pelvic floor. we got to do something with the bladder itself right and then there's obviously infections you know clearly there's a history of urinary tract infections and in a lot of people who have interstitial cystitis. Sometimes it's documented, sometimes it's not, and that becomes kind of complicated. I've had plenty of people refer to me over the years with a diagnosis of recurrent urinary tract mm. infections, and I say, okay, how many of these episodes have you had? Ten. How many are you know? How many times were you cultured? Uh, three. Oh, and how many of those were positive? Um, well, one. <laughs> they said was a a mild infection Mm. and when you hear that you know it means it was a contaminated specimen Mm -hmm. and you put this all together say wait a minute that that wasn't an infection at all and then there are the other ones who have a couple of documented infections and then it everything flares so they get an e coli or klebsiella and even though you clear the infection the bacteria is gone they still have symptoms for mm-hmm. four to six weeks. So, yeah. you know, there's some, I think there's just such a broad spectrum and it's sometimes it's hard to, to spend the time and try to figure out specifically what's wrong with each individual patient, but that's our job. Right. I mean, when we can.
0: Why do you think that, well, I guess chronic UTIs might not be the best word to describe it, but chronic UTIs, whether they were actual infections or whether someone thinks that they were UTIs and maybe they weren't. But why do you think that that contributes to this chronic bladder problem of frequency, urgency, pain, whatever the symptoms may be?
1: I mean, I think sometimes it is an inflammatory process. You know, the I mean, I have occasionally done a cystoscopy. Mm-hmm. I mean, a cystoscopy, by the way, is not required for right. the diagnosis, I think it's helpful to rule out other things. It's also helpful for urologists to pay the rent, frankly. Right. Um, and, you know, <laughs> some people just want to know I don't have bladder cancer, so that's what you do. Right. But in reality, it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, for example, we don't do bladder biopsies, or at least I don't, yeah. to rule out interstitial cystitis because there's no specific finding. Mm-hmm. There used to be I've this never idea. Even heard of that. Well, it used to be popular. Um, you do a bladder biopsy and then you'd ask the pathologist to do a mast cell stain mm. and I got tired of having to call the pathology lab every time and tell them why I wanted them to do it and then they would grudgingly do it and say well yeah we found a couple of mast cells mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of what you find when you biopsy everybody. Right. So What once is a mast cell? An, uh, it's, it's an inflammatory mediator uh-huh. that you find um, in I guess, various other conditions, mm-hmm. which I frankly don't remember what they are. Yeah. Um, but that, if you did find a lot of mast cells, you'd say, oh, mast cells are the ones that released histamine. Mm-hmm. So you treat somebody with an antihistamine. You know, mm-hmm. There is good evidence that drugs like hydroxyzine- I've
0: been on that. And
1: hydroxyzine, if, again, if that's part of the problem, right. then is gonna work great. And some people respond miraculously to it other ones don't
0: and it un- it like solves the underlying problem
1: well if it, if, if it, there's a problem with you know that yeah. if your problem or someone's problem is too much you know hypersensitivity and mm-hmm. these mast cells keep you know getting activated and releasing too much histamine oh great use an antihistamine mm-hmm. for that subgroup right. now what how big is that subgroup that's eh, probably not that big right um frankly i think you know there's more data for that than there is to use something like Elmiron. Mm -hmm. Now Elmiron, when it works, is great, but...
0: Can you tell what Elmiron is?
1: um, I think the the chemical name is pentosan polyphosphate. I might have gotten that slightly wrong, but it's it's the only oral drug specifically designed for interstitial cystitis. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's supposed to help coat the bladder lining, You know, so if you're, you know, again, that theory of interstitial cystitis, which is that you've got a faulty bladder lining that lets, you know, toxic materials through the lining, you know, which is an attractive idea. And, you know, Mm -hmm. some of the, you know, the tunnel visioned guys uh, of the interstitial cystitis community have felt that that is the problem that everybody has. Right. And that even if, you know, if you find somebody, for example, with a, you know, you hydrodistend them, they have a 1,200 cc bladder, they'll say, well, that's early interstitial cystitis. It just hasn't had a chance to, you know, mm-hmm. form all those problems in the bladder to make it small. Mm-hmm. I mean, a true interstitial cystitis patient has a small bladder capacity. Right. You know, really, you can't distend them more than, you know, several hundred cc's before it really gets painful. Mm-hmm. You know, those, that to me... You know solidifies the diagnosis and says this is a real bladder problem Mm -hmm. i have very few of those patients yeah but when you find it you know that's what you've got
0: have you heard of this drug called ldn low dose naltrexone
1: you know i've read a few things here and there um again it's probably harmless Uh um i don't know the data very well to comment but again if someone has tried a bunch of other things why not
0: why not yeah someone told me about it the other day and said that he has a he works at a pharmacy and he's he owns a pharmacy and he said that it's like miraculously helped a lot of his customers who have autoimmune diseases. Yeah.
1: And and the question is why? why? I mean, because yeah. Naltrexone I think is one of those opioid mixed yeah. agonist antagonists. So yeah, why I'm not sure exactly. You know, so I mean I think in, in this world um you have to be a you have to be careful of the difference between anecdotal experience mm-hmm. and data. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people attack the scientific community for, you know, rejecting certain types of treatments. But you know, the scientific method, which is you know, doing randomized double-blind placebo-controlled studies, is really the gold standard, mm-hmm. and sometimes you're not going to get that. You know, yeah. we were talking a little bit earlier about you know one of the theories of the you know the biofilm and having back that interstitial cystitis mm-hmm. is truly an infectious process, um, and that you have to do special type of cultures that of course insurance may not pay for, mm-hmm. and that's only available in certain areas. And it's almost like it, I don't want to say, People have a conspiracy theory, but it's like, well, you know, modern medicine is all controlled by industry and nobody right. wants to listen to us. We're the voice in the wilderness, you know, so come to me and pay me your money and I've got, you know, I've got the cure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, again, I people get desperate and do that, but there is a difference between anecdotal and real scientific evidence.
0: What do you think of that? Cause, so just to give everyone listening a little bit of a background, there's this article that a friend sent to me and I sent it to you and it talked about how you can probably sum it up better than me, but it talked about how I see almost all I see comes from infection in the bladder and that if you treat it with antibiotics or certain antibiotics for a certain strain of bacteria, this woman has seen her patients feel better but she talks about all these crazy tests for bacteria what do you think of those tests right
1: so I don't personally have experience right so if she's listening she'll say aha see I told you that's you know you're part of the you know the conspiracy of of the establishment who's rejecting my uh, ideas but this idea of a broth culture Mm -hmm. and I've seen people do that and I don't know enough about what the broth culture is. I think even in her own article, mm-hmm. she sort of says, "Well, the, even the standard broth culture doesn't necessarily show it, so now you have to have this specifically new and enhanced thing." And the idea—I think it was DNA testing—to look uh-huh. for traces of, you know, of bacteria. And you know, my feeling is that if you, in fact, hold that theory to be true, and she claims eighty percent success. Mm-hmm. And as one of the comments was, oh, yeah, show me the data. But if that's the case, I mean, many of us empirically, without spending thousands of dollars on on unproven remedies, will say, you know, you're someone who has had a few urinary tract infections, you know, real document, here's a Klebsiella, here's an E. coli, and I will, you know, that data not with, or that anecdotal experience notwithstanding, say, you know what, here's a month of low dose antibiotics. Mm. I do that all the time. Even yeah. I mean since I I don't want somebody who has recurring infections to become an IC patient right. or I'm not really sure which is which. say, so, you know what's the harm in putting somebody on a little bit of antibiotics just low dose with the theory that if it's in a biofilm or it's hard to get at, at least if there's antibiotics non-stop for 30 days and it does help some people.
0: So is this without woman- having to do
1: Doing tests. Fancy.
0: So is this woman prescribing some sort of antibiotic that most doctors don't prescribe? I she didn't, didn't say. She yet. didn't yeah. say.
1: You know, a lot yeah. of what was fascinating is during the question and answer, yeah. there were no answers. It was all just, you know, give us a call or send us an email confidentially and we'll set you up. And it's
0: like a six month wait list, which is crazy.
1: Right. So I don't even know where she, and I don't know where she practices, but, and again, I'm not saying that what she's doing is mm-hmm. there's anything wrong with it. Mm-hmm. But it's not published in medical literature. Again, you know, mm-hmm. if you if you if you like conspiracy theories, then a lot of people and, and this is a real. I mean, I hate to say this, but a lot of people who do the alternative or complementary medicine have that sort of feeling, like, okay, now we've got the answer. You know, medicine is corrupt, and, and there is certainly corruption in medicine. Mm-hmm. But you know, the reason that, that people treat things differently is not for corruption. It's just a lack of understanding. And right. someday her theories may turn out to be true. But when you think about the amount of money that's spent on research, it's crazy. there's a lot of money being spent on research, and so far that hasn't been mm-hmm. the, you know, that hasn't been the the universal finding. Mm-hmm. You know, you would think that with all the money being spent, right. we'd sort of know that by
0: now. Right. Why do you think that so many women who have these bladder conditions have an overlap with pelvic floor conditions and vice versa? Right, and
1: that's a, good, that's a really good question. Which is chicken, which is egg? Right. So we certainly, on the incontinence and voiding dysfunction side, you know, there's plenty of what we refer to as dysfunctional voiders. Mm-hmm. You know, Those of us who urinate normally take it for granted. You know, we urinate three or four times a day. We sleep through the night. We sit or stand, we relax our pelvic floor muscles, we don't even realize that's what we're doing, and voila. We don't even know what pelvic floor muscles are. Right, and and why some women and men develop pelvic floor dysfunction and then dysfunctional voiding, meaning Mm -hmm. they sort of, they push to urinate, or they interrupt the stream, and they don't really, it's all dysfunctional, as opposed to, no, I mean, You know, those of us who urinate normally don't get it. It's like, of course, you stand there, you relax, and the urine comes out, and then you're done. But when you see somebody who's a dysfunctional voider, and we don't need to do urodynamics or cystoscopy, we just sit them on the flow meter. And I very often, you know, someone will come out, I give them privacy so that they're not, you know, overly inhibited. Uh Because, you know, some people have what we call bladder shyness. Yeah. You know, where they can't pee. the faucet on. Right. Turn on the faucet. You got to go into the stall. Yeah. You know, for, for us guys lining up at a trough at a baseball game, right. you know, some of us said, oh, guess what? I'm not I'm not doing that. Yeah. That's my my, my yeah. brain and pelvic floor are not going to allow that to happen. Yeah. But if you stick, stick somebody in my office, I have a very small exam room, and sit them in the corner and say, you know what? Just sit, relax, and pee. When you're done, come on out. Nobody's watching. Right. And then they come out and then you take, the, you take the curve and you say, wow, look at this. Instead of a nice bell-shaped curve, stopping, starting, stopping, starting, it's like, whoa, that's there's a pelvic floor problem. Mm. And so if you have a pelvic floor problem like that, then the muscles can become hypertrophied and painful, or you can develop infections because you're retaining urine, mm. or you can become incontinent. I mean, all of it starts coming together mm-hmm. and again, if somebody starts with a bunch of urinary tract infections, you can imagine becoming a dysfunctional voider because it's painful to pee. So every time you try to pee, the muscles tighten up, right. and before you know it, it becomes kind of hardwired. Yeah, and that's a and that's why these things. That's why the continuum is so fluid, mm-hmm. because there really is a huge overlap between those. Mm-hmm. And you know whether we can figure out which who started it. Um, you it's know, hard. If you fix one, maybe the other one goes along with it.
0: Right. Interesting. And then if we want to talk more about IC now, a question that I have always had that I found very interesting and always have been told a lot of conflicting information on is whether you need to do a cystoscopy in order to diagnose IC. And I think that the answer varies among doctors.
1: The short answer is no.
0: Right. And I think that, that is like the, I think that's really the right answer. I mean, that's the right answer. Yeah.
1: If you have a negative urinalysis, mm-hmm. because the likelihood that you're going to find something in the bladder when the urine shows no red cells, no white cells, and the culture is negative is vanishingly low.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, again, some patients really are very paranoid they have bladder cancer. That's all they're worried about. Somebody like that if the anxiety is so, so bad then it's actually then doing a cystoscopy might actually relieve the anxiety and actually make their symptoms get better right if it's all an anxiety related now you know cystoscopy is it's a relatively i mean it's invasive it's not that big a deal if it's done properly now if you're a patient who has a very tight pelvic floor very anxious you know, cystoscopy can be painful. Mm-hmm. And then you can sort of pay the price for a while afterwards. Now, luckily for women, the urethra is very small, um, you know, it's short, mm-hmm. and so you're not, the the damage is basically not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to do hydrodistension as a diagnostic tool. I find that somewhat helpful. Uh, if you distend a bladder that's not used to being distended, you can get a cystoscopic finding called glomerulations, which is almost like the mucosa cracks a little bit and you can just see these little blood vessels. Um, that's, again, something that's been challenged, saying, well, what? there's nothing pathognomonic about that. What if you take somebody who's just a neurotic, frequent peer? All right, let's just say I take someone, say so I'm gonna do an experiment. You're gonna pee every hour for the next three months, mm-hmm. so that your never your bladder never gets distended more than fifty milliliters. What's going to happen if I then put you to sleep and stretch the bladder out? Is it going to do the glomerulation thing? Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. Right, that's interesting. You know, so they've done some studies where they, you know, they looked at you know women having hysterectomy for for benign uterine problems, mm-hmm. but they hydrodistended the bladders, and lo and behold. They found some glomerulations, right? But I do have several patients when under anesthesia the bladder holds 250 cc's. You know they've got a terrible bladder. I mean Mm -hmm. that's real, you know, documented. That's tough. It's
0: complicated. That's
1: really complicated. That's um, you know, you can hydrodistend them periodically. I have a guy actually. He's he's actually just turned 82. And he, he actually has what's called a hunter's ulcer, uh-huh. which you almost never see. Um,
0: How do you get that?
1: It's unknown. It's an inflammatory thing. When you distend him, it bleeds. And at one point, I saw this thing and I thought, uh-oh, this guy's got bladder cancer. I've been hydro-distending him now for a couple of years. And then I biopsied it. It's like, nope, inflammatory. Wow. So I was like, oh, thank God. I you know would have felt really bad yeah. having missed the diagnosis of bladder cancer so he doesn't anyway but so that's sort of the end of the line when you have a you know a bladder that's terrible at the other end of the spectrum is you meet somebody who urinates every hour but you put them to sleep and they hold a liter
0: i think that was like my is my what happened with me
1: i don't remember it's been right, that long, long but but it is you I know i go which,
0: to the bathroom every hour and i always feel like i have to pee every, like every second I feel like I have to pee. And that's the one thing that I haven't really been able to figure out. Um, But I got two cystoscopies. You did one under anesthesia and I got one not under anesthesia. And my bladder was totally fine. Could hold a lot of urine.
1: Right. So, you know, again, and that that just shows how, you know, how broad Mm -hmm. this can be. So in your case, clearly there's nothing Physical in the bladder that you know, there's no excess collagen or whatever there is Um, It could just be that somehow certain neurotransmitters get released You know that when your bladder even when it gets even though it can hold 1200 Uh when you get to 150 something is happening Uh Um, Again, that's that's what's that's what's frustrating is why can two people with the same symptoms have such dramatically different findings? Yeah. And the same thing on physical exam. You know, yeah. somebody has, you know, pelvic floor that is tender and someone else has a bladder base or urethra. You know, that's the difference between the bladder and the urethra. They're sort of one unit, but sometimes it seems like the urethra is the source. Mm-hmm. And if you look at old urology literature, they used to talk about the urethral syndrome or chronic urethritis. And then all of a sudden that kind of disappeared and all was under this, you know, the larger diagnosis of interstitial cystitis slash bladder pain syndrome. And now there are chronic, I think, CPPS. I, mm-hmm. Frankly, I don't even know what the latest terminology is. But the idea that, they, you know, in other words, it was almost like in the old days, they were really trying to separate it out. And right. I certainly see that clinically. I've met some patients where it's the urethra. Mm-hmm. You know that's clearly the source, and that's actually kind of tough to deal with. Well, yeah, how do you, do you treat do? the urethra yeah. differently? Um, you know, you have to get an MRI in some patients mm-hmm. to make sure that there's no diverticulum there. Yeah, What's urethral that? diverticulum is a little pouch that comes off the urethra that can get infected, mm. um, and that can cause pain. It's mm-hmm. it's not that common. Uh, depends on how hard you look for them. Right. I have a patient who unfortunately responds nicely to urethral dilation you know good old-fashioned misogynistic urethral dilation used to be very common Uh in the bad old days with the mean old male urologists you know sort of punishing their young female patients i mean i'm kind of joking except that's sort of what it feels like um urethral dilation used to be done all the time right for
0: what exactly is
1: it it's basically taking you know the taking metal sounds and dilating the urethra so you start with you know something small like 12 french and you gradually right right and vaginal dilation has its you know i mean in certain situations and this particular patient of mine actually um we got our set of dilators for home use wow because that's what seems to help her you know originally she was quite convinced it was cystoscopy that did it um it's, I mean, again, she's different than mm-hmm. someone else. And in her case, it's clearly the urethra, not the bladder, not mm-hmm. the pelvic floor.
0: But you figure that out, which is helpful.
1: Well, that's, see that to me is what, that's why you wanna, you wanna have someone who kind of really does take a history and tries to figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Like I said, for those, for those people who have a very tunnel vision view of the world, you know, we were talking about that earlier. There are certain right. practitioners, it's all about the yeast. So it doesn't even matter what your symptoms are. It doesn't matter. They've already got it. You walk in the door and they've already got their theory. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, I've been it's... To those doctors, right. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, for, frankly, it's a lot easier for the physician. Mm. Because if you walk in and he already knows, he or she already knows what's going on. Or the woman where it's all about the biofilm and the chronic infection. You know, she doesn't even have to examine you and say, wait a minute, your urethra is super sensitive. Wait a minute. Maybe that's, you know, sometimes I actually, my brain hurts when I'm trying to figure out what what to do for a patient. And at one point, I actually came up with a list of like all the medical therapies, all the other therapies, just so I could sort of start crossing right. them off in difficult patients because a lot of it is trial and error. Yeah. You know, I've, different I've kinds think of like medications. most of
0: it is trial and error. Yeah because everyone's body responds differently.
1: Right. And like I said, it's a lot easier for those practitioners. And again, whether it's a physician or a physical therapist or chiropractor or whatever right. it is, um, you know, and some look, there are some certain there are skills out there. For example, one skill set I don't have uh, that some of the practitioners do, physician and mostly physicians. Um, Or those that can do certain nerve blocks. Mm -hmm. Like there is something called a pudendal nerve block.
0: I got that.
1: Um, And that's, you know...
0: It didn't help me. But that's more of like a diagnostic thing. It can be diagnostic.
1: Well, it can be therapeutic too. Right. But it's, you know, I always... When I you know, read about how that was done. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, you use the St. Mark's electrode to to identify the pudendal Mm -hmm. nerve. You know, it's like this weird gloved thing that you put in the rectum, like, oh, Jesus. Or in the vagina. Um, I had a patient of mine who went, there was a kind of a, I don't want to say he's a crazy doctor, but a guy up in Minneapolis, somewhere somewhere up in the cold white north. And he went in there and had both of his pudendal nerves sort of, released mm. you know he came in i'm like what the hell are these scars on your butt you know he had There were like these these two scars and this doctor had gone in there and and you know they find alcox canal you know the pudendal nerve goes mm-hmm. through alcox canal and you know if your hypothesis that that's what your that's what the patient's problem is then you go in there and you release the pudendal nerves
0: did it help him
1: I don't think so. But he had some nice scars on his butt. You know, again, if somebody goes to this guy and they get better, I'm not going to see him. Yeah. So that's one of the problems. Exactly. So I tend to be kind of a cynic anyway. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you sort of remember all the failures. But, you know, I try to remember yeah. the success stories yeah. as well.
0: When I got the nerve, my gynecologist did the pudendal nerve, black- nerve block, but she did it vaginally. And she didn't use any sort of electrode. She just, I think, like injected... The general vicinity. The ner- the nerve, yeah, which I think is
1: probably can... okay. It wasn't but... a very invasive Yeah, I mean, thing. I think that the ones where they there is something, you can look it up, called the St. Mark's electrode, at least last time I looked yeah. it up 10 years ago, yeah. which, you know, you use this electrode on your finger yeah. to sort of really identify exactly right. where you where, are. Uh-huh. But, you know, they, they do, I mean, I've seen something not necessarily advertised, but there is work being done on nerve stimulators like an implantable nerve stimulator that actually stimulates the pudendal nerve.
0: Why would someone want that?
1: I mean if if let's for example let's uh-huh. just say that you had gone in for this pudendal nerve right. thing and it and she injected some lidocaine, and you're like, oh my God, I'm you know pain I'm symptom free for six hours and then it pain comes, comes back. back and you challenge it again and you're pretty convinced that that works. You know, the, the idea of nerve stimulation or neuromodulation mm-hmm. is the term. Um, I think I touched on the idea of interstem. Mm-hmm. Interstem has been commercialized. Um, Medtronic uh, makes a lot of money with these things. And it's basically it's an implantable pulse generator with a lead that delivers functional electrical stimulation to the sacral nerve root, mm-hmm. usually S3 um i haven't done this in a while just because frankly it's a it's a lot of work and um i don't like to do things at the hospital anymore yeah. but luckily i know other people that do it so if somebody if i feel someone needs yeah. that done i'll have them do it but this is another way that, again the crossover between you know urinary problems pelvic floor problems fecal i mean it's even mm-hmm. inter, it's indicated for fecal incontinence mm-hmm and so it generally stimulates, I mean, when you do the test stimulation for interstem, when you find the right spot, you actually can see the levators tighten and you actually, it's what we call a bellows response. It's kind of, it's a little, I don't wanna say it's perverse, but when you do the procedure, you're sort of looking right at someone's behind and you tape their butt cheeks so you can actually look and when you stimulate S3, you see what's called a bellows response. It's a deepening, which is because the levators are being activated. So neuromodulation actually stimulates the levators. And for some patients, it can be dramatic. That stimulates like a little tap, tap, tapping can make their symptoms dramatically better. My problem with inner is that people who do it like to do it. Mm-hmm. So they do it a lot, right. whether it's gonna help people or not. Right. Because it's sort of more just like a assembly line business. And that's my problem because mm-hmm. you know, if you're just the occasional implanter, it's kinda of hard to do it.
0: Yeah. I was just thinking, I have another question about I C that I wanted to ask you before, but why do you think that some doctors believe they need to do a cystoscopy to diagnose I C
1: You know, part of that may be the whole medical legal idea and mm-hmm. that is you don't want to miss something. Right. So that's one possibility. I sort of joked, but it's not really a joke, that you know if the insurance company's giving you $150 to see the patient, but they give you another $200 to do a five-minute procedure, right. and you can reassure the patient that, oh, you don't have bladder cancer, it's kind of a win-win. So mm-hmm. that's, that's why procedures are done mm-hmm. in medicine, primarily.
0: But why do you think, like, now that I'm really thinking about it, so my gynecologist, that referred me to you really was adamant I get a cystoscopy. So she was because so she wasn't the one obviously going to do the cystoscopy because right. she was a gynecologist, but she believed that a cystoscopy needed to be done yeah. in order to rule out IC. You
1: know, it's in, you know, I remember that now, mm. and you know I think some of it is just practice patterns. Mm-hmm. I'll, I mean I'll never forget my when my mother saw a, I guess it was a urogynecologist out in San Francisco. You know, so that's ironic. So my, my mother, who has a son who's a urologist, now sees a urogynecologist, mm-hmm. which is fine. I have nothing against urogynecologists. They're actually very good at what they do. And so she was seen by the nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she saw the actual doctor for five minutes, but that's the way a lot of places work. She had a negative urinalysis, negative culture. In fact, after the first visit, and my mother was having just some you know, some overactive bladder symptoms. Mm. And the nurse practitioner called her like five days later and said, oh, Mrs. Vapnick, um, I'm pleased to tell you that your urinalysis your came back negative and the culture came back negative, so we'd like to schedule you for a cystoscopy. And I thought, you know, how illogical was that? You know, that because your urinalysis was negative, therefore we are going to do a cystoscopy. And I told my mom, I said, just say no. You know, there's no need. Right. Like, what's the point? But right. ap- apparently, and you know, this is San Francisco, which is not quite as, you know, fee for service mm. as New York is. Mm. Um, it's not. It's not all about the money. But I was thinking that this just a, this was just something that this particular urogynecologist just did for everyone. Right. There's a pretty prominent urogynecologist here in New York. Who does aerodynamics on everybody coming in, everyone, on their first visit, with Did any they kind put of ear? With any ur, I mean, as it was to me was just so.
0: I s- had that it's so painful.
1: I mean, me. it can be, but it's like you don't
0: do that. You don't.
1: That's just. I mean, that unfortunately is. I mean, not to go off on a yeah, tangent yeah, yeah. about how awful American medicine is. You know, the insurance companies squeeze doctors, and then doctors push back so they're like fine i'll just do a bunch of unnecessary procedures but to do it on someone on their first visit um it's just wrong and i you know and this guy happens to be very good at what he does but you know when i saw this i just rolled my eyes i'm like that's just not right Mm. you know a friend of mine went to see an orthopedic surgeon and they were you know when he went into the at the very beginning they said all right that'll be a 30 dollar copay and a 35 five dollar copay for the x-rays he says, what x-rays? Oh, well, everybody gets x-rays. He said, I'm not getting x-rays unless the doctor says I need x-rays. Yeah. And I said, okay. And he didn't need x-rays.
0: Unbelievable. So
1: it's kind of the way physicians are trained. Right. And so I happen to be kind of a cynic who mm-hmm. feels that most things we do in medicine are unnecessary. Mm-hmm. You know, you do procedures when they're going to change something, not just because that's the next thing in the protocol. Mm-hmm. So, it's just not, like I said, for someone who's anxious or has a history of bladder cancer, it's a good idea. I remember when I was a fellow. Um, after I left, I remember there was a lawsuit uh, that we got. Against us, Um, you know, woman with chronic pain. We've been following for a long, long time. I don't know, know, more than ten years, and then it turned out she developed ovarian cancer. Now, clearly, ovarian cancer was not there when we started, and it just made me think. Well, gee, how often should we be getting sonograms or something? Right. Right. You know, because at what point do you, you know, do you, you know? uh, we have a tendency, oh, oh, here comes so-and-so. Yeah, we know her. Just give her her Elmeron. We'll see her in six months, yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. Um, but so that may be, that, that's the idea of, okay, yeah, we'll do a cystoscopy right. just to be sure. Right. Do a sonogram just to be sure. Now, of course, if the cystoscopy and sonograms are being done by that person, you know, there may be ulterior motives.
0: Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on... Doing a cystoscopy under anesthesia versus not under anesthesia? Because I know that urologists also do, that, do it two different ways.
1: I think you can go either way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that comes down to clinical judgment. If you have someone who has a either very high anxiety level mm-hmm. or someone where you really think the urethra is the source, I think doing a cystoscopy under local is kind of cruel and unusual punishment. Um, if, if it's someone where I think that's going to be fine, then I can do it under local. But again, I don't even do them in everybody just because right. I don't find them to be that helpful. Yeah. The likelihood you're going to find a bladder tumor when there's no blood in the urine is infinitesimally small. You can certainly do a sonogram you know, to rule that out. So the under anesthesia, the difference is that when you do it under anesthesia, you can hydrodistend the bladder and Mm -hmm. see what a functional bladder capacity, you know, present company included. You know, I do voiding diaries on everyone. So you do a voiding diary, it's like, oh, guess what? You're peeing 100 cc's every time, you know, Mm -hmm. two or three ounces, and then you go to sleep, it's like, whoa, the bladder holds 30 ounces.
0: That's what happens to me. I can sleep through the night every night. I've never had a problem. But when I'm up during the day, I'm peeing every hour.
1: Right. And so that's where the hydrodistension makes sense. Mm-hmm. Although even in you know in that case the voiding diary is incredibly helpful because if you say oh look one ounce one ounce one ounce one ounce oh she went to sleep and woke up the next morning and urinated sixteen ounces right. that already tells you something very important and so, like, actionable. what do you
0: do for patients like that?
1: Well, that's the you have to sort of figure out what is it about the you know what is it about the sensitivity that you know your bladder. Or the way your bladder interacts with your brain is there's something about being awake. In other words, it's mm-hmm. not something, if it were super bad, it would wake you up from sleep. Right. So there's something about your being awake. So I'm not sure what the best way of dealing mm. with that. But um, at least, you know, it's not hydrodistension. You know, I don't think. You know, Elmeron is not on my list of favorite drugs, but I mean, I often try Elmeron just because I feel frustrated.
0: Why isn't it your favorite?
1: I mean, Elmeron sort of. um, I mean, the use of Elmeron means that you think it's a it's a primary bladder permeability Mm -hmm. problem, which I just don't think is the case in everybody. Now, it may, you know, how do you prove that? Right. You know, why is one, why is your bladder sensitive? Why is somebody else's bladder sensitive? Is it because you have certain neurotransmitters that are different? I mean, there's so many. It's not just the beta 3 receptors and the muscarinic 2 and muscarinic 3. There's all sorts of other... I don't even remember them anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the basic science stuff that they look at. And, you know, maybe someday someone's going to say, oh, guess what? I figured it out. Yeah. It's Substance X. And I invented, a, you know, and now we have a drug that blocks Substance X. And now you, you know, now you pee every six hours. Mm-hmm that would be great. So, that's, you know, we <laughs> have to have to just keep a, keep an eye out on the research that's being done. Yeah. You know, the problem is a lot of the research in IC is all looking for inflammatory mediators in the blood, in the urine. Mm-hmm. And I've always found that to be very short-sighted. It's like, no, there's more to it than that. It's clearly that, you know, clearly there's nerves that are just, you know, giving you information. Yeah. I don't want to say like false information. It's like it's making you feel like you have to pee when you don't.
0: Yeah, I think and, that's part of my problem. Right,
1: and sometimes you can sort of suppress it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, but how do you do that? You know, that's bladder training. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh yeah, it's very easy for me to say, just ignore it, yeah. just don't, you know, when you get that urge to urinate, in an hour, don't do it, yeah. just wait four hours. Now, sometimes that urge or discomfort or pain or burning or whatever it is keeps getting worse but if it doesn't, then I mean I've seen I've seen bladder training work. Mm-hmm. You know when it's that specific issue, it's like you know you're peeing every hour. It's like I don't want I don't want to pee every hour, right. but I have that sensation.
0: Right. What are some of the other treatments that you use for IC that you've seen to be effective?
1: So, I actually made a little bit of a list here while I was walking over here. Mm-hmm. Well, not while I was walking, just before I walked over. So the you know the hydrodistension can work for a few people. Mm-hmm. Bladder installations yeah. um, can work. Uh, some people respond to just plain old lidocaine. You know, good old-fashioned lidocaine. It's a, you know, it's an uh, anesthetic. And if it sort of numbs the nerve endings, that can be helpful. I've had a few people work with that. And Th- then does it last? No, lidocaine doesn't. But lidocaine is sort of something that if it does work, it kind of gives you a clue as to what you can do going forward. Right. The traditional... Cock, they used to they they called them cocktails,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and the DMSO, is, you know, dimethyl sulfoxide yeah. was always sort of the linchpin, and then they would throw in heparin, solucortef, sometimes they put in uh, sodium bicarbonate to buffer it, um, and that was something that we used to do. And, and in fact, you know, some patients would do it themselves. You know, catheterize, put the cocktail in through the catheter, pull the catheter out. It's like, ta-da. And you feel good? Yeah. You know, let's put it this way. It's, it's sometimes it works really, really well. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a waste of time. Plus the schlep factor of having to go to the doctor's office every week to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if it works, like I said, for those patients who find it to be helpful, you can say, oh, look, this is how you do it at home. And one of the most revolting things that has happened is like all the other revolting things with our pharmaceutical industry and the suppliers. DMSO, now DMSO is an industrial solvent. You know, if you're using it in your factory, um, the stuff is dirt cheap. If you're using it in a laboratory, you can buy a couple of liters of it for $100. When you use it for medical purposes, since it's not that common, the going rate is something like six or seven hundred dollars per dose, mm-hmm. which to me is just unconscionable that wow. the suppliers do that. They're like, "Hey, what? What are you going to do? Where are you going to get it?" Well, what you could do, and I did it once. It was kind of fun. I had a patient um, who had been looking into this as I want to try DMSO. I said, "Fine." He had a very good friend that worked in a laboratory. <laughs> And the guy ordered DMSO as one of his, you know, he used it in mm-hmm. his experiments. <laughs> so I went over to this guy's lab, you know, sort of wearing a trench coat and a hat almost, and you know, slipped six bottles of DMSO into my backpack, gave me you know slipped him a hundred dollar bill. And that was like the equivalent of I think I did the math at the time, like each bottle had the equivalent of like six doses. So like 36 doses, so it was like $3 a dose instead of $700. You know, it's like, are you kidding? So when you order something, I mean, it's a typical thing when it's something's for medical purposes, then the companies can just jack it up because they're used to sticking it to the insurance companies. And then when the insurance companies say, hey, guess what, we don't pay for that anymore. So one of two things happens. Either I get stuck having paid $700 for something And then the insurance company says, "Sorry, we're not paying you for it." And then you go to the patient and say, "I'm really sorry, but that stuff I put in your bladder is 700 bucks." Um, Or you just don't do it. I mean, but that's that's the situation we get put into. Yeah. Um, But that's an interesting, You know, those those installations, and then in terms of the oral medications, Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to prescribe an oral medication, Mm -hmm. Elmeron. Is number one. That's the only oral drug specifically for interstitial cystitis. Hydroxyzine, which is an antihistamine, um, muscle relaxants like Valium, you know, diazepam can be very, very helpful. Um, trying to think what other medications we've used. What
0: about like uh, amitriptyline and nortriptyline and some right. and right.
1: That was when I when I wrote TCA down yeah. here, the tricyclic antidepressants, yeah, yeah. and so you know, low dose. Amitriptyline, which is Elavil, and low-dose Imipramine, which Mm -hmm. is Tofranil. you know, they've been around for 50 years, can be amazingly helpful. Right. Um, Especially those also, they tend to be sedating, um, but that can be a good thing. So for someone, not yourself, somebody Mm -hmm. who does get up at night a lot to pee or has a hard time going to bed because they keep trying to, you know, they keep feeling they have to pee before Mm -hmm. going to bed, um, that can be very, very helpful. Yeah. Symbalta um, is a little different, you know, works differently, but can be very helpful. And again, we don't even know is that working on receptors in the bladder, or is it working on receptors in the brain, or both? Right. Same thing with the muscle relaxants. You know, when right. you take Valium, it's like, is that specifically targeting the pelvic floor musculature, or is it relaxing your brain? It's probably both.
0: Both. Yeah. And it's
1: and fine. What's wrong with that? Yeah. You know, there have been. I know the, one of the things that has been popular, Valium suppositories. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen studies completely debunking it, mm-hmm. basically doing randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, Valium suppositories versus placebo suppositories No difference. Yeah. Now that doesn't necessarily mean they don't work, but at least in those controlled studies, they didn't work. Um, again, are you going to find patients who say no, no? This is this really works well for me. Fine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's the hormones, the hormonal stuff. Yeah, you know something that that um, I think uh, Josh Gonzalez was talking about in right. his podcast, which was very you know very um, astute stuff that. Often kind of goes under the radar. Mm. Is it something having to do with an oral contraceptive? Especially in older women who are postmenopausal, there's no question mm-hmm. that they can benefit from manipulation of their hormone status vaginally. Mm-hmm.
0: And also, one other question about diagnosing IC, because I like the way that you explain it, and it's similar to how. Another doc, another urologist I had on the podcast explained it as well. Her name was Dr. Christina Palmer, but she said that you don't need to have all of the symptoms of IC to be diagnosed with IC. And this is what you told me when I came into your office, but you said that IC is just this term and doesn't really mean so much.
1: Well, it's a syndrome. So there, in other words, there is no test. Yeah. No definitive test. You know, like some, some syndromes... I'm trying to think of, I mean, obviously, cancer diagnosis, you have a biopsy, right. you send it to a pathologist, They say, oh, you have cancer. So that's, you know, that's a definitive diagnosis. Um, you know, a rheumatological mm-hmm. condition, the polymyalgia rheumatica, mm-hmm. sometimes fibrom, You know, there's the polymyalgia rheumatica, which is a lot of chronic pain. You have a very elevated sed rate mm-hmm. and you take steroids said rate goes down symptoms go away mm-hmm. as opposed to fibromyalgia where there is no definitive diagnosis right and there is a crossover between fibromyalgia pelvic pain you know whether they're one in the same one is a subset of the other one so interstitial cystitis is urgency frequency and pain mm-hmm. and i think that's different than you know some patients do not have urgency frequency. They just have pelvic pain. Right. And to me, again, it's on the continuum. But if someone just says they have pelvic pain, then I tend to look away from the bladder.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To me, it's you know if you've got if there's a bladder involvement, it's got to have some urgency frequency to it.
0: Yeah, but and
1: maybe that's simple-minded on my part.
0: No, but like in my case, for example, I don't have pain or pressure. I just have urgency and frequency. So you said, I believe that. I'm someone who could be treated with IC treatments just because I don't have pressure and pain.
1: Right. And again, that's Mm -hmm. the the continuum that took me 20 years of practice to figure out that, you know, overactive bladder, which gets advertised all the time because, you know, that's urgency, frequency. And then there's IC, which is urgency, frequency, pain. Mm. And so if you think of those like, well, somebody may experience something as urgency and somebody else may experience it as pain who are we to to right. say that they're different right you know we we know that certain people have much different pain thresholds you know some people just seem to be incredibly I don't want to say wimpy but mm-hmm. you know some people just don't seem to tolerate any pain and other people are you know just much stronger that way I guess and
0: people's pain receptors also some people like I don't I think my pain receptors fire really easily, as opposed to some other people's bodies might just not be as sensitive.
1: Exactly. Uh-huh. And, we don't, and that's something we don't have a specific test for that. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be great? It's like, oh, we're just going to do, you know, if we do a bladder biopsy yeah. and we can say, oh, guess, you know, let's look for a, you know, pain receptor density. Sounds easy enough, right? I don't yeah. know how they would do that, but there's probably some special stains. But I think someday someone, you know, someone will do... Um, Know, do some better research. you know, I you go to a if you go to scientific meetings and you wander around and after a couple of days, you realize your mind is swimming because you've seen hundreds, if not thousands of different papers. and you can't even remember anything, but I remember years ago, and again, I don't remember it that well. there was some scientific experiment done in animals where they I think what they ended up doing is they they caused bladder inflammation by throwing something moderately toxic into a bladder and what they found is that it actually changed the, ner- the nerve innervation mm-hmm. like at the you know above the bladder mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. and it you know it sort of solidified that idea that there's such a connection between the physicality of what's going on and the nerve that's really interesting
0: wow. i wish i
1: could remember the details but yeah. it was something that at the time i mean this was like 15 years ago so who remembers that
0: that's fascinating. But it though. really
1: said, oh, wait a minute. One can trigger the other and vice versa.
0: So like if in a human's body, if you have infection there, it triggers something with the nerves there.
1: Right. You know, I had a um, one of my former um, professors who worked under Emil Tanago um, used the term, I think the term, it was a neurological term of like wind up. And I never, I never actually figured out exactly what that meant. But I think it... Was the idea that you know chronic stimulation would cause the entire system to sort of be firing more rapidly and and everything whether it's extra nerve ending sprouting or something like that Mm -hmm. but but there's such a continuum and that's what makes it tough to sort of figure out Mm -hmm. what to aim your treatment at
0: yeah have you seen patients for lack of a better word recover from ic and you know like they have period of their life where they're in a lot of pain and then they figure out how to get out of it and they don't ever have symptoms again or is I see something that most people that you see have to live with for their whole life
1: I think that's a really good question because if you go on the various sort of support group websites and I yeah. warn patients yeah, against like it yeah, because there's bad. a lot of you know a lot of anger that's I mean, it's aimed at the medical community, sort of like you know you don't you don't understand us, and you're purposely you oh, know it's conspiracy. There's a little bit of um, what's the what's the opposite of misogyny? Like, is it myth, misan- misanthropy? I'm, I'm not sure. Not... It's kind of interesting that, uh-huh. that you know, misogyny is a word we know very well, and the but being anti male is sort of, I guess, bec- you know, because yeah. of the way society works. Yeah. You know, all the old white men controlling everything, but uh, but there is sort of that undercurrent of like, no, the system doesn't understand us, male doctors especially. Mm-hmm. Although if they're perfectly frank, it's like a lot of the female gynecologists don't understand them either um but interstitial cystitis you know those support groups are very often those are the chronic end stage ones who are really problematic And of course what what's unfair about that is that there are the successes and i don't know what the numbers are that's hard to tease out because if i see somebody and i say oh you know this sort of seems interstitial cystitis but you know this was triggered by a bunch of utis let me just put you on antibiotics for 30 days or 60 days somebody gets better well guess what they're off the map now they're not they're not coming back and they don't go to the support group and they don't go in there and say hey guess what guys you know there are success stories i've had patients who were on i mean a couple of them who lived completely normal you know normal lives with relatively minimal symptoms now sometimes it's they still do have symptoms but they're negligible and mm-hmm. they don't even notice it most of the time until mm-hmm. something stressful happens or they have a dietary indiscretion you know the we had touched on a little bit earlier about you know certain dietary restrictions that can help mm-hmm. and i've always been very cautious I'm, i may give a patient that Interstitial, cyst diet, interstitial cystitis diet handout, Right. but I say please don't take this literally Yeah. because you go through there and you're like okay, I'm going to get rid of blueberries, I'm going to get <laughs> rid of cranberries, I'm going to get rid of everything and you know, I can't eat pizza, I can't eat you know, it's like come on, you know you got to yeah. live your life. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you that there are patients who who pick and choose and say oh, you know what, yeah that I don't have to go through all that but boy, you know, if I have a you know, carbonated beverage you know that tickles my bladder mm-hmm. it's like which makes no sense of course because the carbonation doesn't get into your bladder right. it's in your stomach right you know and then the bubbles are gone but or you know alcohol caffeine yes we know what the bladder stimulants are so if you have a particularly sensitive bladder yeah you know drinking three vodka tonics probably not the greatest idea yeah but if you can get away with it great
0: yeah if it doesn't make your symptoms worse right
1: but, you know, someone who just is so desperate, they're like, I'm cutting all this stuff out. It's like, don't do that. Just, mm-hmm. you know, take take one or two at a time.
0: And see if anything right? triggers. Right. I mean, if you, know, if you
1: can't eat pizza, all right, you know, life goes on without pizza.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean,
1: life is better with pizza. <laughs> the same thing I don't with eat alcohol. I,
0: I'm gluten-free. Are oh,
1: you? Yeah. I can a, have
0: gluten-free pizza. Okay.
1: That's, <laughs> I don't really understand that. But. <laughs> I mean, just like, you know. know, the idea of not drinking alcohol is like, okay, you know, not drinking alcohol yeah. is definitely
0: That's hard. For, it's hard for a lot of people it's, to come to terms with that. Right,
1: it really is. Yeah. Alcohol is just sort of one of those. It's part about, you know, it's part of being American, part of yeah, being human. coffee. Coffee, too. Yeah. You know, I've had patients who say, you know, I like, cut out coffee completely, so now I have headaches and I'm only like 3% better. I'm like, well, you better get right back on your coffee cuz that was clearly or they now they're constipated all the time. Yeah. So
0: It's like you can't ever fully. Yeah.
1: I mean, coffee, you know, like everything else, in moderation. Now, mm-hmm. if someone says, you know, I cut out coffee and I'm 100% better, okay, then that's the person who can go without coffee, but right. to me it's common sense and and you know, if anyone listening to this, I think the a take-home lesson is to avoid dogma, Mm, you know, there's too much dogma in this area. And there are people who it's, you know, like I said, it's all about yeast. Okay. You know what? For some people it might be about yeast. Someone else, it's all about the diet. You got to deal with it. Okay. For somebody else, it's, it's all about Mm -hmm. hidden infection that only my special test can pick up. Okay. That's probably true for some, but this is such a, you know, such a broad area that I, I just think, gotta be careful. Anyone who's really dogmatic about it, even physical therapists. Yeah. Physical therapists are, you know, I'm very happy with physical therapy and they do a lot of great stuff, but, you know, they can't cure cancer, for example.
0: Are there any resources that you recommend that you have found helpful in your practice or that you would think, you know, people listening who may be experiencing some of these issues could benefit from?
1: You know, I think there are, I'm really, you know, now that Google is so easy, um, I, I'm not very good about sending people in particular places, but you know, the, the, I, the interstitial cystitis association has their website, Mm -hmm. which is not bad. It's Mm www.ichelp.org. Um, the international pelvic pain society has their website, uh, which is www.pelvicpain.org. Org also,
0: and I'll link them in the show notes so that people can just yeah. access. And then,
1: and a lot of the pill, you know, if you, I, you know, I just before coming over here, I decided mm-hmm. to just Google and see what yeah. popped up. And there, you know, some of our uh, better physical therapists here in town have yeah. some very good websites with some very good resources there. Um, definitely, I don't know if I can say names, yeah. but I mean, you know, Amy Stein with yeah, Beyond yeah, yeah, Basics, yeah. they have a their. You know they're in the top 10 yeah and so you know i know amy stein very well in fact we're having dinner tomorrow night yeah. coincidentally yeah. um and i'm not you know yeah. a paid spokesman but you know i th- i find her uh I read group her book. right it's she great. has heel pelvic yeah, yeah. pain which i have i actually noticed that it's still sitting on my bookshelf at home yeah um so she she and her team of therapists are also very very good mm-hmm. um, I found some other you know some other therapist who has a fantastic website which is actually very funny she's in Asheville North Carolina um, but that what just I mean, goes to show I don't even remember what it is I mean if anyone goes and you know just Google's pelvic pain this mm-hmm. one, It's gonna pop up, and it's actually pretty funny.
0: Down below, physio. It was
1: something. It was something like that. I mean, it's got a lot of kind of a lot of things that are a little off color, but but funny. Um, Yeah, good for her. Yeah, physical therapist with a sense of humor. Yeah. When I think in this business, you have to have a sense of humor because you have people who are really you know it's very upsetting. It's a there's a there's a big connection bladder symptoms and emotion. Mm. Uh, you know it affects sexuality mm-hmm. and just affects the way you deal with the world and mm-hmm. you know I I um, like I said I have a lot of empathy even you yeah. know patients even if you know it's, try to help everybody some people are harder to help than others
0: mm-hmm. so a listener of the podcast sent me an email and I thought that this was the perfect way to transition into this new kind of segment that I'm going to add to most episodes not all of them but most episodes where we can answer just spend like five minutes answering this listener's questions and hers happened to relate very well to this conversation so I thought why not throw them in after this episode Um, but she was really asking about different disorders of the urethra such as urethritis and what are the causes and symptoms of them and then she also wanted to know if These conditions of the urethra can cause vaginal pain,
1: which is a very good question. Mm -hmm. And again, it's you know, the urethra is sort of the forgotten part because you touched upon that a little bit because it's connected to the bladder. And you know, in the male, we have a much longer urethra, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, in women, it's you know, it's two or three centimeters long. So, how, how, um, You know, how do you separate it out? And I will tell you that, you know, there are patients when you do a good pelvic exam and you feel around, you say, you know what? It's your urethra that's, mm-hmm. you know, this is definitely where the sensitivity is. It's not the base of the bladder. You know, we can, you know, we, we know our anatomy. So I, I know when I'm touching certain right. areas, you know, the vulvodynia, the, uh, uh, you know, when you're touching vestibulitis and all mm-hmm. the rest of it is one area and the urethra itself is different, but it's a, honestly, it's a tough, if you really are convinced it's the urethra, mm-hmm. that's very, very tough. Um, that's something that can be infectious, so there may be a role for antibiotic suppression. I've had a couple of patients over the years where I've tried to inject local, mm-hmm. sort of right at the level of the urethra. With varying degrees of success, generally not that great. Mm. Um, I think that's since urethra does have a you know it has the urethral sphincter in it. Um, that is something that um, you know if you're if you're working on pelvic floor muscles in general, there can be crossover to that
0: into the urethra.
1: Urethra. Uh huh. You also want to you know it's you obviously sort of have to test for the usual organisms you know like chlamydia gonorrhea the Mm -hmm. rest of it which is you know again almost never positive Mm -hmm. but if that's the case you know a quick course of doxycycline can knock it out right Um, and like i said there are the occasional patients who benefit from urethral dilation Mm -hmm. for whatever reason it's kind of archaic and i don't really want to sound like i'm in favor of it because Mm -hmm. in the past 99 percent of it was done for no good reason at all
0: right so most of these conditions of the urethra are caused I mean, you talked a lot about bladder conditions, I relate, but like infection or hypersensitivity of pain receptors. Same stuff. I think it's the same stuff. And like I said,
1: once in a while, if there's an index of suspicion, you can do an MRI to -hmm. make sure there is no urethral diverticulum there. Because Mm -hmm. urethral diverticulum, which is a small outpouching of mucosa from the urethral lining, if that's the case then you can imagine how that could become painful just because it's you know it fills with fluid fills with urine that can become infected mm-hmm. so that but that's a tough area I've, I've not had that many MRIs turn positive right? but sometimes you're sort of forced to do it if again if you're pretty convinced the urethra is the source
0: mm-hmm. and is it possible that if the urethra is the source it can cause Pain at the opening of the vagina or pain with Absolutely. urination, vaginal pain with urination.
1: Absolutely. And that's, uh-huh. you know, and that's again where you know, I sort of not jokingly, but said right. that you know, women are complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, they you are. know, the
1: nerves, there's a lot of crossover. Mm-hmm. So you can't necessarily pinpoint. I mean, if you have sensitivity, someone says, look, it's clitoral and that's where the problem is, you can touch that mm-hmm. area and say, oh, that's sensitive but sometimes it's referred mm. so something going on in the bladder can be referred to the urethra and vice versa. You know, we see that in men. I you know, I've had men who keep pointing to the meatus, you know, the opening of the urethra saying I've got pain right here and it's because they have a stone in the bladder. Mm. So the bladder is reacting to the stone but it's referred. Right. So that's with all that interconnection, you know, that's where the that crossover occurs, and again, mm-hmm. that can lead. If it's a urethral problem, that can lead to dysfunctional voiding because every time you try to pee, something hurts. Um, one of the other, I forgot earlier mm-hmm. to mention that one of I don't want to say my favorite drugs, but something that I do try mm-hmm. um, is what I call the blue stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a. They're almost all proprietary mixtures. There's Eurogesic Blue. There's urobel, there's UREL, and basically they're all slightly different because they've changed the the formula just a little bit so that they can have a patent on mm-hmm. it. Uh, you know, insurance companies will typically say no to all of them, or they'll say oh, you can only get this one. To me, they're interchangeable. Right. I don't care how many milligrams of methylene blue versus how many milligrams of methenamine hippurate. Right. But those things can be very helpful, and you know, it's kind of cool to have blue urine. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's, and then there are the other ones that are, you know, the turn your urine orange yeah, that you can get over the counter. Them, yeah. And for some people that's very helpful, you know, yeah. for whatever reason, you know, that tends to sort of work on the lining of the bladder and the lining of the urethra. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, again, that can be really, really helpful. I have plenty of patients who get these intermittent symptoms. They're like, oh, here comes another flare and they can take blue or orange, depending on what wardrobe they're wearing that day, mm-hmm. what their mood is, you know, hydration, doing that stuff, maybe mm-hmm. sits baths, you know, sitting in a hot bathtub can be helpful just I mean for some, yeah. to just relax the muscles,
2: yeah,
1: um and then it's like, oh, good, two days later, they're fine, right, you know and that that's you know a lot of those patients used to take antibiotics every time, right it's like then they finally realize, wait a minute, it's just an irritation, mm-hmm. and those are the you know you're asking earlier about patients do they live with it forever it's like no some of them will have the intermittent symptoms and then they just go back to baseline right. they may have chronic frequency for example mm. sometimes those you know chronic frequency just is something people have had lifelong and just seems to be almost hardwired yeah. which is annoying as hell um but better than the ones that are you know have super pain you know yeah. when you're if you have pain every hour and you only get relief by urinating that's that's when it's really bad
0: yeah Thank you so much. You're welcome. I think that's it. Good. Where can, if anyone wants to contact you, where can they do so?
1: Um, do I think you? I have a website. I haven't, <laughs> I think, I think it's com. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Okay. <laughs> but it's com. I'll link, I'll link this as yeah. well in the show notes. And my office, you know, phone number is 212-717-9500. So I'm happy to, like I said, I'm a I have a special interest in this area, but yeah. I see all all the other urological stuff that may not be as interesting also.
0: Thank you. It's
1: been a pleasure.